You're about to join Niels Kostrup Larsen on a raw and honest journey into the world of systematic investing and learn about the most dependable and consistent yet often overlooked investment strategy. Welcome to the Systematic Investor Series. Welcome and welcome back to this week's edition of the Systematic Investor Series with Alan Dunn and I, Niels Kastrup-Larsen, where each week we take the pulse of the global market through the lens of a rules-based investor. Now, if you're new to the show, I hope that today's episode will trigger your curiosity enough to check out the back catalogue and listen to past episodes that you may have missed, like last week's episode with Mark, where we discussed the trend-following renaissance that we may be witnessing and why investment banks seem to be very obsessed with developing models to front-run signals of trend followers who, by the way, are clients of the same investment banks. Also, I would really encourage you to listen to the midweek episode where Jim and I once again jo- was joined by a natural resource expert Adam Rosenzweig for a really important conversation about the real reason behind the current energy crisis, uh, which ended up forming part of a two-part conversation. Uh, the second part we will release in a few weeks. But it is, um, it's a big topic and there were much to cover, so we decided to split it into two. Anyway, Alan, great to be with you as always. And uh, I know you're not at home. So uh, how are you doing? How are things where you are? Very well. Yeah, I'm, I'm over in the US at the moment. So speaking from uh, Connecticut. Uh, but yeah, lovely, lovely uh, sunshine over here. So i um, been traveling for the last week. Uh, but great, great to have the chance to speak to you. Yeah, yeah. We're going to hear more about your trip uh, later on, I think. Um, so in any way, you've been traveling this week. Obviously, you didn't miss much. Not, nothing really happened in the markets, Alan. Um, but we are recording on the last day of September. Um, and it's kind of hard to pick among all the events that has taken place during your travel uh, and during the month, actually. I would call it a like September to remember. Um, and uh, since we normally stick to what took place um, in the most recent week, I do think the collapse of the trust in the British economy and policies is perhaps the most important event that the week could offer. But of course, it also included warfare, let's call it that, um, by certain parties uh, against uh, the Nordic countries uh, when it comes to uh, energy infrastructure. Um, And specifically, of course, this all took place in the Baltic Sea, where the gas pipelines Nord Stream 1 and 2 have been put out of commission from what looks like four deliberate explosions. Now, the reason I mentioned um, that the events uh, that took place in the UK this week is perhaps uh, even more important, um, it's really because in the last year or so, maybe even a bit more, I have been saying on the podcast that I do worry about what happens when the markets lose trust and confidence in the institutions that we rely on. And the fact that the Bank of England had to go out and intervene in the British government bond market this week, um, and you know perhaps even to try and avert um, a um, you know collapse maybe or at least a, a, a big issue in the pension fund system, uh, is quite remarkable. And I can't stress how important this is um, because what we saw in the UK could also happen in other Western countries. Um, so, anyways, Alan, I don't even know if you've had time to follow what's been going on while you've been traveling but what's been catching you eye maybe this week or maybe this month yeah i guess it's it's you know we're, we're seeing a continuation of of what we've been talking about this uh you know going back a couple of months the, the market got a little bit complacent that maybe we'd seen the worst in terms of 
inflation and Fed and central bank hawkishness. And but since then, it's just been uh, continued to, to to ramp up, and and, and obviously that's been a, a continued theme. I guess what we're also seeing as well is. You know some 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 maybe of the what, what what you know what you see in these periods. You have policy responses and can trigger certain things, but you can also see unforeseen uh, reactions. So I'm sure this is what uh, uh, the policymakers in the UK are experiencing now. They wouldn't have uh, envisaged uh, when when they decided to to cut income taxes that you would have got such a, a severe reaction. Now, there were warnings that this could happen, but that certainly wasn't their base case scenario. So I think it's. Um, Part of the, I think we'll probably get onto this as we talk today. You know, um, th- that's one of the areas where why you do get such big moves in markets from sometimes. See, you know, that that the way the market is set up, uh, that certain thresholds can be breached that are outside of expectations. You know, and that was part of the story. I think with with the gilt market that, uh, you know, some of the pension funds would have had some liquidity on hand to deal with this type of eventuality, but the moves in gilts were so severe that they, you know, ran out of cash and had to start selling assets very quickly. So, um, yeah, it 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 it's as we've been saying. You know, you have to. Uh, think outside the box and, and be planning for eventualities that have been outside of what we're used to in recent years. Exactly. Imagining the unimaginable, which suddenly becomes quite imaginable and very realistic uh, all of a sudden. Uh, now, from a trend-following perspective, as I mentioned, we're recording a day early today. So it's Friday, last day of uh, the month of September. Uh, September looks like, uh, at least last time I checked, um, that it could be uh, another strong month for trend followers uh, around the world, really. Um, another strong month in the year of 2022. I think that investors are starting to see the benefit of having a different investment process in the portfolio. Um, because even if this has been a great year for, say, global macro in general, when we look at all the opportunity, and, and that is from all, you know, looking at all the opportunities that the year has provided, so to speak. But when I look at the Barclay uh, Hedge Global Macro Index, it's only, and I say only, uh, up about 7% uh, at the end of August. Um, so I wonder a little bit if these more discretionary type um, investors um, are really able to put on the quote-unquote bearish position when it comes to and you know pulling the trigger uh, on a certain view that they may have, uh, or if they just end up going... Uh, into cash as their quote-unquote uh, risk-off stance um, rather than what we would do if the models say we have to be short. Well, we're just going to go short. We're not going to second-guess that. Um, and, of course, in fixed income and equity markets, uh, well, fixed income in particular, that has been very uh, important. Speaking of fixed income, uh, I think it's fair to say uh, and safe to say that uh, they have played another important role in this month's return or uh, when all the tallies are, uh, are made up, I guess, we'll see that fixed income um, is the biggest contributor of performance uh, in September. But also currencies have been a positive contributor in September. And of course, if we look at a single market, I would imagine that British pounds have been, um, you know, a very uh, important part of that uh, return uh, from a short uh, stance, of course, you know, positions that we would have had on for months. Uh, I know certainly for from our point of view, uh, this was a short position that we entered uh, even last year, actually. So nothing to do with recent events or anything like that. It just shows you um, how suddenly a position can become, um, you know, very profitable. But I will say, of course, there has been a few, um, I don't know if they actually intervened in the uh, FX markets as well, but certainly the pound has bounced a little bit 
uh, towards the end of the month. Energies, um, well, most likely um, it could have been a loss uh, this month for long-term managers, but shorter-term uh, managers would probably have made money since energies uh, do continue uh, to go lower in price, uh, which we've seen in the last uh, couple of months. Equities, much more difficult to call, I think, um, could be quite mixed uh, depending on your look-back period. Um, and actually the rest of the sectors in the uh, in a diversified portfolio, at least the way the ones I look at, um, probably relatively muted uh, compared to the main return drivers. My own trend barometer um, continues to be pretty strong. It closed yesterday at 59. So that suggests certainly that we should have a strong set of numbers for the end of September once uh, the CTA start to report. Um, in terms of numbers, and these are as of Wednesday, um, I think yesterday was a mixed day, nothing too big. Friday right now looks to me kind of the same, maybe a little bit down, nothing nothing major. Um, but the beta 50 index um, was up 4.4% um, and up 19.73 for the year. SockGen CT index up four and a quarter, up 26.4 for the year. SockGen trend index, very strong, up six and a quarter, up 36.2% now for the year. And the short-term traders index up 1.74% in September, uh, up 13% for the year. Comparing that, uh, and this is as of yesterday, so the 29th, MSCI World down 8.6% in September, down 257 now for the year. And the S&P total return index, uh, the S&P 500, I should say, down 7.95% for the month and down 23.62% for the year. And the World Government Bond Index just continues to bleed another uh, down month 3.35% um, so far uh, with a few hours left. What are your, before we jump into the topics, maybe, um, Alan, anything that sort of you've picked up uh, on your travels um, in terms of the month of September, if we're going to round that off? No, I think, as you say, um, you know, the, the big thing probably, uh, obviously, bonds uh, were, were a big driver, but currencies as well, and, and some of these kind of long-standing positions. And and I guess just taking up on, on, on your point that you've made there, and macro versus trend and CTA, you know, it, it would have been very hard to stick with some of these trends uh, all the way as a macro trader, you know, say cable went all the way down to one or three or so, whatever it was in, in the um, Asian session on Sunday night. Um, you, you know, and equally the, the move in gilts have, it, they have just been so extended. You know, if, if you were to uh, have a fundamental view, you could, at so many points, you might have said, okay, we've just, we're, we look like the trend is, is, is petering out here or might top out at the highs and it's just continued. So I, I think it's, it, it isn't an environment that really lends itself to that, that systematic approach because from a fundamental basis, uh, you know, macro trader, but there would be an enormous temptation to take profits along the way, particularly in those moves in in sterling, gilts, etc., which have had really exaggerated uh, moves this week uh, and 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 this month. So I, I think that's what we, what you're seeing in terms of that performance differential, um, and obviously it's it's it, you know what you're seeing in, in performance across trend following. It's been a very good year for for simple trend. You know, if you look at the uh, Sockchain trend indicator, that's up. Uh, you know, which is just basically a twenty one twenty day moving average cross. That's up forty six percent this year. Now, obviously, that won't do as well every year, but it just highlights the fact that basic, simple, um, you know, rules based uh, trend following has 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 been the way to to go this year uh, because we've had such uh, exaggerated and su sustained trends. 
Yeah, a couple of thoughts on that, um, what you said. By the way, I should say um, uh, that, that actually I have seen some reports um, from some of these well-known, famous global macro funds, and actually they are doing pretty well this year, so I'm not talking about necessarily the the star global macro managers. They, they may well have uh, done really well, and, and of course um, we, we know that many of them, interestingly enough, you know, come out and say that they tend to make most of their money um, to the downside when things are a little bit rough. And a lot of them uh, also say that they tend to make a lot of their money actually in the fixed income. And if there's been one big trend this year, and it hasn't been that difficult to call really. I mean, we started talking about inflation a while back. You know, it's been the, it's been the short bond trade. So, you know, uh, good for them. Uh, let's call it that. Now, you you mentioned this thing about it's been great period for for uh, for for classic for simple trend, but but actually I think it's been a good year for for many kinds of trend because yeah, I mean sure. yes we talk about it on 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 the podcast as there's a difference between kind of uh, classic trend or pure well I wouldn't even call it pure trend but classic trend without too many things, um, but also when I look at you know our own performance comparing that to to um other managers um you know i will say and we we we, we as, as as people would know we do use dynamic position sizing and and, and so on and so forth um and we've certainly enjoyed a, a a very very strong year so i don't think um and this is also why i'm not necessarily always uh, in agreement when when we hear that um, in order to catch outliers, you need to not adjust your positions at all. I'm not so sure that that is true. I don't know that there is any hard evidence to suggest that. I do agree that certainly you could say that there is potential for having more open profit if you don't adjust your positions, but the positions may be adjusted both up and down during a long-term trend, and we have to always also um, think about the give back <laughs> because the give back uh, will be harder if you haven't adjusted your position size. So again, I don't see any evidence that one is better than the other. That's always been my view. Um, and I don't see that this year either. But anyways, um, that's fine. This is a kind of a different discussion. It has been a generally a good year, as you suggest, both with the CTA index and the trend index. And um, hopefully more and more uh, investors will see that advantage which actually leads me to your topics today because i think that's actually what it's all about in a sense but from different angles um so i'm quite um i'm quite curious as to where we're going to go because you brought along uh, a number of different uh, articles um research papers there's one from uh, wall street journal there's one from aspect capital there's one from man group I brought along another one, which is unrelated to that, but that was another one I found in Wall Street Journal. Um, so why don't we just jump in and make it a little bit of kind of a, not exactly knowing where we're going to go with this conversation, even though we know kind of where we have a few points that we want to uh, address. But uh, I'm going to let you take the lead and hopefully I can add a few things along the way. Yeah, sure. I mean, w w one thing I just wanted to touch on first, um, you sure. know, going back a few months, we talked about you know what 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 are are the things that causes trends in in markets and you know i think you can speak in generality around that but but i think 
what we're seeing obviously is a very strong environment for trend following this year and in the last few years so it really uh, is is helpful in in kind of framing that and and picking out you know some of some of those uh, themes you know so i mean at a high level you know why do we get these big moves? You know, if we if we go back and say we had this discussion about wh- wh- why was it, it difficult for trend following for a period in the past and why is it doing better now? And at, at a simple level is because you see bigger moves in markets and we're seeing bigger moves in markets now. But the question is, why is that? And and I think there's a few things that that really, when you look at the markets over the last two to three years, Firstly, we've had random shocks. You know, obviously we had COVID, first of all, that was in 2020, and, and that clearly drove big moves to the downside initially in equities and in and, and, and commodities. Uh, eventually those reversed. We had another shock this year in terms of Ukraine. So, so so that's a shock. And what happens when you get a shock is you get a repricing event. You know, markets go from looking pricing assets based on one macro scenario to, to a new macro scenario. So so shocks contribute to, to repricing effects and that can cause trends. Second thing is is obviously when you get shocks, you get a policy response. And very often what you can get, not just a policy response, but a policy error. So what we're seeing now, obviously very much with the Fed being very slow, very aggressive initially in responding to, to COVID and then probably being too slow in, 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 in taking away the stimulus, that, that, that's that been a contributing factor in terms of generating trends in markets. And now jamming on the brakes pretty aggressively, you know, again, some people have said this is going to be a policy error. So that's another factor um, uh, uh, causing uh, um, trends. And I suppose within that, why is that? Because you have uncertainty. So the Fed doesn't know how, how, how hard to, 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 to go in terms of stimulus. It's very hard to know how, how hard to go in terms of withdrawing the stimulus. So that uncertainty is, is another element to, to why you get trends in markets that we're, that we're very much seeing. Um, and then from, I guess, from a, an investor perspective, you have, we always did, you know, the, beha- the, the behavioral aspects of, of investors. When we had the stimulus, you know, it's only a couple of years we had FOMO, fear of missing out, that everybody piled into the meme stocks and equities, etc., you know, you had Tina, the, the, the perception that with interest rates at, at, at 50 basis points in the US in the 10 year, you know, you had to be in equities. There was no alternative. So everybody piled into that from a behavioral perspective. Also, you had anchoring, you know, people assumed that the yields role was going to be in this kind of one to two percent range, zero, one to two percent. And so then when you get these shocks and, 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 and uh, people are, I suppose, um, tend to anchor and then initially underreact and then presumably later on overreact. So again, we're seeing that in markets. And then the other things I would say is often then you'll get second order effect and, and unforeseen side effects in markets from, from, from policy actions. And, you know, we're certainly seeing that this month in terms of, you know, take cable for an example, you know, you had that big move down, I think it was Sunday night. So why is that? Because, you know, you get a random shock and then you have, you know, we've talked about this before, exogenous versus endogenous factors. So endogenous factors can be things like you can have options barriers, you can have stop losses in the markets. People assume that certain levels won't be breached. But when you do, you get a tipping point, you get a cascade effect. So that contributes to trends as well. Um, you know, you, 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 you instigate one policy of tightening policy, you know, say in, in the US higher rates. And the side effect of that is is in the foreign exchange markets in a very strong dollar. Uh, and that can have then unforeseen impacts on, on other markets. 
and uh, like we've seen in the UK this week, we, we we've had a policy announcement in terms of cutting cutting taxes, etc., uh, and very strong moves in in the gilt markets. Probably the unforeseen side effect there has been this pension um, situation where nobody kind of thought, well, that this. Well, I say nobody. I mean, I think a couple of people have had flagged LDI as a potential risk. But you have this uh, liquidity issue whereby as, as gilts are going down and yields are rising, obviously, that impacts the the, the, the swaps uh, and the hedges that uh, pension funds had put into play. And they had to then raise cash and start to sell liquid assets and then push push the gilt market down even more. So, again, an unforeseen side effect of a policy action. So, you know, people say, well, why do you get trends in markets? I think all of these factors are ingredients and features of the market, shocks, policy uh, responses, policy errors, uncertainty, behavioural biases, second-order effects, unforeseen effects. And I think it's important to keep that in mind because when you get a year like this for trend following, it's very easy to say, well, that was, you know, 2020 was such an unusual year. We had like that spike in inflation. Probably will never happen again. You know, so people say that. Or to say 2008, well, that was a global financial crisis. How often do you get to global financial crisis? So, you know, that that's a one-off thing that, that trend following will do well as. But my point would be, is that you have these structural factors. You know, there will always be shocks. We don't know when they will happen, but there will always be shocks. There will always be policy responses to shocks, and the policies are made by humans who will tend to make mistakes. Sometimes they'll get it right, yet they may engineer the soft landing. But more often than not, there will be mistakes. And then you have market participants responding to these events with biases, and the structure of the market is such that you will have setups from time to time uh, endogenous factors which will tend to accelerate the trend. So I think we're kind of just reflecting on what we've seen in markets over the last two to three two to three years to really highlight those structural factors which which are always in play. You won't always get the big trends, but 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 thinking that this is unusual and won't be repeated, I think is the wrong way to think about it. Sure, we won't get the exact setup again, but but as I say, these kind of more structural features of markets are the reason you get trends and, and persistent opportunities for trend followers. Yeah, no, a couple of things um, that springs to mind. I think we should re, I think we should change the term FOMC to FOM, FOMT, fear of missing trends. I think that would would actually help. But uh, no kidding aside, actually, you talk a lot about kind of the um, official policy, um, both mistakes, but but actually trends can also be caused just from normal policies. It doesn't have to be an arrow in 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 a, in a policy per se. And of course, trend trend following doesn't have to do doesn't just do well when there are crises and and errors and all of that. We we know that, even though um, some people refer to us as crisis alpha. But anyways. Um, it reminded me about an upcoming uh, conversation you're going to have uh, in about a month time that I can't wait to hear. And I hope you will ask him about some of these uh, central bank policies. And that is, of course, William White, who used to be the head of the bank of central banks, so to speak, the BIS. Um, and it'll be very interesting to hear what he has to say about what he thinks, or what he knows actually goes on uh, when it comes to uh, central bank um, decision making and so on and so forth. Um, but I completely agree with everything you said. Um, and it still surprises me uh, when I hear people say, well, you know, surely that's not going to happen again. Or um, And of course, we don't necessarily mean that the same thing will happen again, but something will happen. And that's all we're hoping for, that change will happen. Um, and not many strategies 
embrace change and uncertainty um, the way trend following does uh, and has actually a proven track record to demonstrate that um, no matter what the uncertainty has been, no matter what the crisis has been um, or the policy or whatever we call it, has been able to adapt and navigate through this environment. So I hope that 2022, if nothing else, um, one, can be uh, a little bit of a help for those uh, who have portfolios in the more the 60-40 space, but with some allocation to trend following, um, but also that we will um, find more people uh, who are then becoming open uh, to this strategy uh, and diversification across investment process. Anyways, thank you for um, for doing that, uh, Alan. And uh, let's dive into some of these uh, topics that um, that you brought along. There are sure. three of them. They're somewhat linked, um, you could say. So why don't you just uh, set the context? Yeah, that's what prompted me. I mean, I, there was an article in the Wall Street Journal, and then I um, from Alan Blinder, who was uh, previously at the Fed. He was Fed Vice Chair. Um, all to, you know, all of these are kind of linked to the whole idea at the moment of uh, well, the question is: Are, are we going to have a soft landing or, or, or a hard landing in 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 the economy, and what impact will that have? You know, on on uh, on asset market performance, and then. Um, I, after I had read that, I'd come across a couple of articles from Man and, and Aspect Capital, which kind of address how these scenarios may play out in terms of trend following, etc. So I just think it, we're at an interesting juncture now. If you think about where we were maybe two years ago, it was all about, you know, is it going to be a V-shaped recovery? Is it going to be an L-shape? Is it going to be a U-shaped recovery? And now everybody's asking, well, are we going to have, you know, hard landing, soft landing or or no landing, or kind of a stagflationary type landing. Uh, it was interesting. Alan Blinder, he used to be at the at the Fed himself, and so he went back and he 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 he, he looks back historically at at uh, you know what are the likelihood of of a soft landing in the U.S. Uh, and he kind of put it at less than fifty percent, but but not zero. So I, when I read it, he seemed to be a bit more optimistic than most people. I thought probably. Maybe talking a little bit from a central bank perspective of of talking to prospects a little bit, um, you know, he 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 did give himself a little bit of a pat on the back because he was at the Fed in 1994 when they did manage to engineer a soft landing, um, but uh, his his general thrust was, yeah, it, it you know it it is difficult to do it, but not impossible. But I think an important point that he touched on is it's it's even more difficult in trying to engineer a soft landing when you're actually actively trying to bring inflation down as opposed to the 1994 type scenario when inflation is already low but you're just trying to slow the economy to prevent it from from taking off um so that was kind of the context of of this um you know what's important really and and i think it is another factor kind of in trend following um strategies favor is that we don't know what the scenario going forward is going to be you know we could we could uh, we could be looking at deflation in in a year's time. A lot of people are saying, "Well, look at commodity prices now. Look at what we're seeing. Uh, house prices are starting to turn down." So um, it, there is that possibility. And Aspect Capital, in their 
uh, paper looked at basically three different landings, I guess, for, 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 for the economy historically. Uh, the soft landing one in 94, a hard landing in uh, in the early 1980s, and then kind of no landing, which is kind of the stagflation of, of, of the 1970s. And it's interesting when they look at this, they then look at the performance of trend following commodities, bonds and equities. And in each of the periods, trend following does reasonably well. Um, uh, whereas, you know, depending on the nature of the, of the landing, you can have commodities doing well or bonds doing well or equities doing well. Obviously, if you go back to the soft landing scenario of uh, 1994, um, you know, what, what you saw then was um, actually a decent performance for trend following, but it was actually short dollar trades, uh, short fixed, in- fixed income and long commodities where, where trend following did well. Whereas if you compare that to the hard landing scenario of the early 80s, again, trend following did well, but it was long dollars, short commodities and and, and long fixed income. And then if you go to the stagflationary period, and again, that was a positive one for for, for trend following, it was short fixed income and long commodities. So again, it kind of speaks to the dynamic nature of of trend following strategies, of course, that we, we talk about. Uh, we're not trying to figure out what what the nature of of the economic downturn is going to be, whether it's soft landing or hard landing. Um, but the but the pattern of performance, the asset classes that might drive performance for for a trend following performance will differ depending on the nature of the downturn. But it, it but the dynamic nature of the strategies mean that it's you know arguably a better bet than any one of those individual assets because obviously to determine between bonds, equities, and commodities, you have to have a view on the nature of the downturn. So it was, um, it was, you know, very much a case of, you know, a paper highlighting the dynamic uh, nature of, 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 of trend following, which I think is, is, is even more important at the current juncture, because, you know, it, we've had such an unprecedented stimulus and now a very aggressive tightening cycle. You know, I've been in the kind of infl- inflation view camp, but who knows? It, it could change very quickly, and we could, uh, if we had a really hard landing, you could certainly have a year or two where where prices come down very sharply. So, so I think that's that's very, you know, very valid pr- uh, perspective. The other paper uh, kind of linked to this was from from Man, and they were looking at, well, you know, we should you maintain your uh, allocation to commodities in this environment. Uh, because obviously we're starting to see that shift, and and if you were to go into a, you know, a more of a, a disinflationary environment, would it still make sense to be hold a long only um, commodity allocation? They concluded yes. I mean, unless you get into outright deflation, still the diversifying quality of of commodities is still valid. But obviously, you're probably as better, probably even better off getting that commodity exposure via trend following as opposed to a long only. Um, uh, exposure would be would be my conclusion based on based on what, what the, you know the, the evidence they presented. So so I yeah, it, I mean it just uh, further kind of thoughts, interesting perspectives on, you know, rather than trying to anticipate uh, what this uh, what what the next one to two years is going to look like, uh, having that dynamic element in the trend following portfolio is going to be pretty important in navigating whatever the the, the scenario is. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, f- my takeaways from the, the these articles, or what I thought was quite interesting, is that first of all, the Alan Blinder article, uh, when you go down kind of history, um, what he writes is that the Fed has only managed a soft landing once uh, out of eleven tries over the last sixty years. So when people uh, suggest that they will be able to do it this time, they certainly don't have the um, sort of the hard evidence to. Uh, to build that 
probability on. It doesn't mean that they won't be able to do it, but it just means that it's not something we necessarily um, would expect uh, from their uh, track record, so to speak. Um, and um, and it is interesting. I mean, of course, we know that there are lots of articles coming out right now about the benefits of trend follow. Not surprising when it's a year like this year. But looking at it the way Aspect did, um, I thought was interesting um, because we because the narrative has changed. Now the narrative really is soft, hard, or no landing. Um, so I thought it was interesting that they've gone back and, and looked at these periods um, instead of just necessarily the, the typical crisis periods that we we've all uh, we all know and and gotten used to talking about um, and and so on and so forth. And again, hopefully it can prompt some people to look at this um, investment strategy uh, in a different light. And then uh, finally, the paper from um, from Man. Of course, they also always put uh, out some some interesting research, um, and it's 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 an interesting topic. This thing about commodities, actually, from from my um, point of view, I was listening to a conversation with the head of commodities at Goldman Sachs, Jeff Corey, which who I think is a really smart um, guy. And um, his view is that we have entered a commodity super cycle. Um, so, of course, the first question you think uh, you're, you're left with is that, well, hang on. I mean, markets have dropped significantly in the last five months for sure. So how can we still be in a commodity super cycle? Um, and, um, and, and, but anyway, she says, well, in these commodity super cycles, it's completely normal that you have these huge... Uh, corrections in price, um, but it actually doesn't change where you are, where we're heading uh, in a bigger uh, picture. To me, there's a couple of things in that. I mean, he could be right for sure. There's a lot of things that actually point in that direction. Um, certainly our conversation with Adam Rosenzweig um, uh, a couple of days ago uh, suggests that certainly in the, in the energy, spe- uh, energy sector, um, we we could well be uh, heading much higher in terms of price, but then it it kind of opens up the question about well this thing about being long only commodities when you have these huge corrections and as far as I remember you might know this uh, better than I do Alan but as far as I remember when you look at a, a classical commodity market and let's just say it has like a it has a number of, of turning points uh, over a 30-year cycle or, or whatever it might be. I tend to remember that actually about two-thirds of the time they spend going down and about only one-third of the time they, they spend going up. And I also remember last, uh, certainly at some point when we had this commodity super cycle, there were a lot of these commodity indices being launched. And of course, investors got, I wouldn't say burned, but they certainly was disappointed um, with being, you know, a long-only investor in commodities. And I would even go as far as saying that I think a lot of investors ended up buying long-only commodity exposure earlier this year because this narrative, narrative was so strong after the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Um, but it just comes back to this thing that if trend following is hard to hold on to, I mean, I think a long-only commodity uh, portfolio is, is even harder. Um, so a lot of people shy away from it. So I agree with you. I think commodity markets lend themselves much better to a long-short um, strategy. Um, and, uh, of course, we know that commodity markets, at least if I look at our own historical returns, but but I'm sure this is true for, for most long-term trend followers, that commodities do pro- provide you know uh, uh, profits over time, not necessarily all the time, and they can certainly have their... 
um, number of years where they do very little. But in the long run, it's a very interesting uh, source of returns from a trend-following perspective, not only in absolute terms, but also when it happens. Because I think I've seen a paper once that suggested that when you look at crisis periods and where trend followers then tend to make their money from uh, to deliver some alpha during the period, um, it's actually commodities that is the most reliable source of returns during these crises. So that's why they're so important. Now, Jeff Curry made a very interesting point about why he still believed. I, I don't want to misquote him. I wish he would come on our podcast. I have to find a way to uh, invite him on the podcast because I think he made some really important points that people know, don't necessarily understand about commodities. But it's it's to do with the fact that commodities are very closely linked to volume, right? Unlike financial instruments, right? You can always produce more financial instruments if there is a big surge in, in, in demand, right? But with commodities, it's different. There is a finite volume that you can buy. And if demand, uh, you know, uh, outweighs supply, you will get these, um, you know, trends, upwards trends. And and what he's suggesting is that when you, when you provide a lot of stimulus into the economy to basically the whole economy, meaning also those who have the least, then the demand for you know for for a lot of commodities will increase but since it's a volume game and there is an o- only a finite volume then that will lead to si- significantly higher prices uh, over time and i think that's where he's kind of based part of what he's basing his his um, thesis on that that we may still even though it doesn't feel that way right now be at the beginning of a long term commodity uh, bull market um, which I wouldn't rule out at all. Um, so, so that's. Yeah, I, I, I think you're right. I mean, that, that was one of the, the you know the messages from your interview with, with Adam uh, Rosenzweig. You know, very much that that it's the underinvestment story is yeah. is the key, key underpinner underpinning for um, the, this. The, 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 I guess the bullish issue. Now, I, I think Adam was was quick to kind of say well it's it's a cycle whether it's a super cycle or not is kind of besides the point yeah. um it's you know that that it's it's that kind of well decade or so i guess and from under investment you know partially i guess related to lower prices but but also more you know related to esg concerns and the incentives for the oil and gas companies well certainly um, in the, the energy the, sector yeah i mean yeah, we, we the, know that there's been a clear underinvestment for sure yeah. Um, but even also in other commodities, right? I mean, the, you know, we've gone through uh, now this globalization that has meant hundreds of millions of people moving into the middle class. And mm. once you move into the middle class, you will want other types of food, for example, uh, sugar, things like that. Um, and, um, and, and that's where this volume uh, plays a role. And I don't think I've actually thought about it in this way before, but it made a lot of sense the way uh, Jeff Curry uh, explained it. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I think I, th- I think the other point that's interesting. I mean, th- th- on the point of just it being hard to hold. If you look back at the charts of, of particularly the grains, um, you know, there was a huge run up in soybeans, corn, um, lumber. Still, th- these markets, but but back in the seventies, there was a real explosion in the early part of the seventies. But then, like these markets had significant drawdowns, say at different times in different markets. You know, soybeans is very much 
Um, there was a spike in 71, 72, and then it came back down. You know, with corn, it's it's more like a drawdown between, you know, probably for three years. You know, so people say the 1970s, everybody says, oh, inflation, commodities did really well. And certainly in aggregate, yes, it was a very good period. And obviously oil prices went up and gold probably went persistently up. But, you know, these days, if you're in a commodity basket, you're getting exposure across a whole range of um uh, markets um, and not, you know, even within, a, I suppose, a super cycle, you will have uh, periods where, where individual markets are experiencing drawdowns. I think that's the other part of, of you know, commodity investing is part of the, the, the return is from that rebalancing and the fact that you have different markets doing well at different times. So there is, there, it does tend to get a, 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 a that diversification benefit of selling some of the winners and then rebalancing to some of the others. I think the final point that I didn't mention as part of the, that is important part of the man piece that they highlighted as to even if you saw kind of a, a less favorable kind of environment for, in terms of spot prices um you know most of the markets are in backwardation at the moment so that is is favorable for for, for long positions and you know probably evidence of of that kind of tightness that underlying tightness in in these markets so i think um yeah probably not that we're either of us are fundamental commodity uh, experts, but, but you know, based on everything we're reading, that that, that, that longer-term uh, bullish picture is still there. But that's not to say you can't have significant drawdowns in the short term if economic uh, conditions, you know, really deteriorate. And the good news is, Alan, we don't need to worry about it because we just follow the price, right? So uh... Exactly. Anyways, you have been, as you've uh, talked about, uh, on the road, uh, a road trip that has taken you uh, not only to Connecticut, but to the Windy City as well, um, where you were um, kind of, uh, how should I say, mixing your trend exposure with some volatility exposure. Uh, not least That's catching right. up with Harry and, and Jim uh, from from from, uh, from TTU. So... Um, What's been going on? Um, what what are you hearing from these uh, conversations and conferences? Um, how are people feeling about? I mean, in a sense, not that we're experts in volatility, but um, it is an interesting point, right? Because a lot of investors kind of took the view that yes, we were worried about the high equity markets, but the better way of protecting ourselves against the inevitable sell-off in equities would be volatility based on their limited experience from March of 2020, frankly, maybe a little bit in February of 2018 with Volmageddon, um, even though that might be a more unique situation uh, because of the XIV and the role that played. So I do think that there has been a lot of interest and, um, and a lot of disappointment, frankly, um, this year, because as someone put it, um, that with long vol strategies, at least you kind of hedge yourself against, or it's a kind of an insurance against some kind of catastrophic event. But it's not an insurance against wear and tear. And it's been this kind of wear and tear, gradual uh, movement, and on top of that, probably some decoupling of relationship between the VIX and the, the uh, S&P that has um, been tricky uh, even though we know all strategies go through difficult times, so I'm not saying that this is you know permanent, but but again, it, it kind of 
goes on also to the next point we're going to talk about um, liability-driven investment strategies. It's kind of, uh, we get sort of a narrative that becomes very popular. Money flows in that direction. Um, and sometimes, which we also saw with trend following, by the way, in 2009, a lot of money flowed into trend following given the returns of 2008. And frankly, they were disappointed. Um, so anyways, um, what's the what's the yeah, word on the think- street? I think all of what you've touched on is, you know, kind of part of the story. As um, I was in Chicago uh, at a conference uh, uh, moderating a panel, and it was interesting. We had kind of a mix on the panel of CJs, trend followers, and uh, traders who are more volatility focused. And it does, you know, goes to this uh, classic um, debate if you're looking to diversify away or hedge equity risk. I'm kind of reluctant to use the word hedge, but diversify equity risk, uh, people naturally think in terms of CGAs or, and trend followers or, um, you know, volatility traders or tail risk. Uh, and again, within just as you can have within CTAs, you know, a range of different strategies and, and a range of approaches and different speeds who, you know, that will provide different types of performances depending on the market environment. Once you get into the realm of volatility trading, it's the same thing from pure tail risk hedges to more absolute return focused uh, volatility traders as well. So again, very important to know exactly what you're getting when you're allocating to any individual manager. So from obviously, as you touched on from this year's perspective, very much large dispersion, I would say, in the volatility trading space. Some people doing still doing quite well, others struggling. Um, as you say, partially, you know, a few different factors. The nature of the down move in equities has been different. You know, obviously, if you get a, a period where you're going into uh, um, um, the start of an equity bear market where volatility is very compressed and uh, as we did in 2020 then obviously when you get a, an explosion of volatility you got a significant significant rise in the VIX and that was a period that was that was much more favorable for for volatility trading and tail risk hedges than it was for obviously trend following did well in aggregate but again within trend you had some people who did well some people less so depending on how quickly you were to jump on those trends um, whereas this time around, we've had much more of a grind lower. So it's kind of much more like the bear market of 2000 to 2002, you know, kind of a kind of a saucer shaped type of top that that's kind of hasn't you haven't had enormous moves down in any individual day, but it's kind of continued to grind lower. What has that meant in terms of volatility? You know, the VIX has kind of bumped along between 20 and 30 for most of the year. We haven't had that singular, you know, real panic event. Looked like we might be on the verge of it maybe last week with, with the kind of heightened uh, fears around the, the, the UK and, and fixed income markets. But we haven't had that really standout, you know, uh, real sense of crisis that's, uh, that you often get to push the VIX up above uh, up, up, you know, to 40, 50, 60, something like that. So, so obviously, volatility and tailored risk hedges, you know, unsurprising will do well when you buy them cheap and then you get a surprise to the upside in an environment where you have to carry that cost of that protection um you know it eats away do you have this bleed which which is higher and it, it, you know that's not to say as we're saying that that's a, an inferior strategy it just it will work in a different environment the environment that we've been in this year has been much more favorable interesting if you go back to 2008 you know, the VIX was kind of like it has been this year. It's kind of bumped along between 20 and 30 for most of the year until you got to September when you obviously had Lehman and then you had the spike higher. So again, not to say that that, that these types of strategies won't deliver maybe later in the cycle, um, but it, there is an element of understanding, you know, 
where you're getting your your your, your protection, how much you're paying for it, um, to to understand you know what's the risk reward. So, yeah, I thought it was very interesting. Uh, you know what what you do see from an asset allocation perspective. And we've seen this with uh, some of the discussions that we've had on the allocator series is, is people obviously allocating both to, to tail risk and volatility trading and to trend following on the view that, you know, you will get different types of equity market declines. You know, sometimes it'll be a February 2018 type of event, sometimes a March 2020, and sometimes it's more like what we're seeing this year. You know, the RNE is, you know, going back. Again, a couple of years, you had this narrative that, well, oh, equity declines are, are always fast, you know, that the market has sped up, that somehow we wouldn't get these kind of more prolonged, slower cycles. And obviously, you know, people are just fitting a narrative to what they'd seen recently. And, and obviously, you know, if you're in markets long enough, you see every type of market declined. Yeah, absolutely. It's interesting. Uh, Jim actually is going to be on the Systematic Investor Series in a few weeks. And one thing I wanted, uh, hopefully I'll remember this, um, to ask him. And that is, you know, the VIX came out in 2004. Um, so it's only really existed through declining interest rates, no inflation. And so I'm just curious how this change, um, which I think will last for quite a long time. I mean, I, I'm a believer in these uh, cycles, I guess. And um, the interest rate cycle seems to be about 40 years. So if it did change um, about a year ago or so, and it might last for quite a while. Uh, plus, if inflation is here for much longer than um, people um, can imagine, then it may have a, an impact on how these models are developed um, based on history that only has only been around for a relatively short period of time and certainly in more or less the same regime, this carry regime uh, type environment. So it'll be interesting, but that will be for another conversation. Now let's try and round up our conversation today. Um, and um, and then let's maybe just jump into this a little bit uh, article that I saw in the Wall Street Journal about this li liability-driven investment strategy um, that is very uh, popular within the pension fund system. Um, and as I mentioned before, and have mentioned for a while, I mean, one of my concerns is that we're going to start seeing some kind of loss of trust, loss of faith, loss of confidence in some of these institutions. And if we do... Um, traditional investment strategies such as those that are often employed by pension funds could be in trouble. I mean, they're already in trouble this year to some extent, um, but they could be in, in in a lot more trouble. And then I came across this article about um, pensions funds adopting the so-called liability-driven investment strategy. Um, and in particular, the article focuses on, on the UK um, because, of course, as mentioned before, uh, the Bank of England had to come and intervene uh, in the long guild market this week um, because of the massive um, price drops we saw in government bonds um, and being, you know, for, uh, driven by forced selling from from maybe pension funds as well. And I've seen, you know, in the article, um, there's a consultant um, who um, from from Aon uh, who talks about. Uh, what you see is the start of a death spiral. I don't know whether that's true or not, but I mean, clearly, uh, if it continues, um, it will it'll force even more selling. Which, by the way, and that's a completely different discussion. We haven't even talked about passive investing and what that might do if this continues, and and so on and so forth. But it it is 
again, as you say, it might be one of these unintended consequences because of regulatory changes. A lot of these pension funds were kind of forced into doing something else. So they came up with the idea of, and by the way, I don't necessarily think that consultants can be completely free of blame here. They're usually the ones coming up with all these smart ideas for uh, new strategies that they can go and implement. But it was this risk of hedging against um, lower interest rates, right? So they put on all these uh, swaps and so on and so forth. But then when interest rates starts to rise, suddenly you're sitting there staring at massive losses that can be potentially much bigger. And to give uh, our listeners a, um, a just a little snippet of what um, uh, how big this is, in the UK, apparently, this investment liability-driven um, or liability-driven investment strategy has increased from about 400 billion in 2011 and is estimated to be about 1.6 trillion pounds as of 2021. Um, so it is a huge strategy throughout the pension fund uh, system. And I think there was, they quote also that there was a survey of 137 big UK pension schemes um, in 2019, and they found that 45%, almost half, had increased their use of leverage in the last five years. And by the way, the maximum leverage allowed by a pension fund ranged up to seven times this survey found. So once you start getting into these things, both using lots of leverage to compensate for maybe lower uh, returns on their fixed income portfolio, um, combined with swaps that they may or may not fully understand uh, what it is and, and what else they've gotten into, I do worry, uh, and I can just see, by the way, since I spent the summer here in Denmark, I um, I was noticing some of the um, abysmal returns that were being posted after the first half of the year from even the biggest pension funds uh, here in Denmark. And of course, we know Q3 has only made those worse. Um, so you sometimes have to wonder a little bit why these, I'm, ass- I'm assuming, well-educated and very clever people um find themselves in these kind of situations, uh, especially when interest rates were, you know, so low that you, even with a, you know, um, you know, I don't know, I, I don't want to say anything negative here, but even, you know, you don't have to be a PhD, let's put it that way, to figure out that most likely interest rates were going to go higher, not lower. Um, yet we see now the fallout of um, strategies like that still being, uh, held by by pension funds. Anyways, Alan, am I too negative on a Friday? I, I, I'm not sure. I mean, I think um, there's a lot of talk about this. I'm not sure a lot of it is as informed as it should be. I, I, I mean, I think there was definitely a liquidity issue during the week that obviously there was mark-to-market losses on the LDI investments, the swaps, which makes sense. Obviously, interest rates are going up and they, you know, the point is they have those positions on because if it rates go up, they get a benefit in terms of the the liability side going down, so it's okay from that perspective. I think that the the, the issue was you need to then fund uh, those positions, or you suffer market to market losses calls, and yeah. margin calls, etc. And then you need liquidity for that. So how much liquidity had they put aside, and that probably wasn't enough. Um, so then, what do you do? Well. You know, I, I would have thought you would have been able to if 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 your if your if your um, pension scheme is 
solvent, I would have thought you'd be able to get liquidity against it. But maybe these everything yeah, happened so quickly that they weren't and they had to start selling their most liquid assets, which were gilts, which then obviously accentuated the problem. Um, there was obviously uh, a famous case, I think it was back in the early 90s, Orange County in the United States oh, yeah, was a pension that, um, that went bust because of derivative exposure. So I think that may be in the collective memory of the market that they hear derivatives and pension plans and they fear the worst. Um, so yeah, I think there's a lot going on with, with respect to pensions because obviously when rates go up, uh, as I say, your, your liability side goes down. Um, so the other part of this is you may see more liquidation on the asset side. There was a suggestion that UK pension plans might now turn to be sellers of uh, property, which would be, you know, obviously it's not something you can sell very quickly. Um, but, you know, so there could be more widespread reverberations from this, uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's as I said earlier, it's a repricing event. So you've got a big jump up in yields. Has um, you know, we've been hearing about the problem of low yields for pension funds for a long time, which is very obvious, you know. Um, so it's not all negative. It's you know, if you were if you were retiring now in the UK and you had a had a pot of cash, you you, you would actually get a decent, a much better annuity, you know, because of the higher rates. So people tend to focus on the negative aspects of this, but I think there's there's more to come out on this story. Yeah, there could be there could be a system. Yeah, I don't know if there's a systemic problem. There could be challenges, but I think there's um, multiple kind of second order effects here, and hard to say how it's going to play out. But um, yeah, as I say, I think I think uh, when when people hear of derivatives and pension funds, they they get worried. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, we shouldn't end on a negative note, Alan, of course. So let's go back to the FOMT, fear of missing trends. Clearly, that's what people should be focusing on, uh, in our humble opinion. Let's round up this conversation. We have a few hours to go before the end of uh, September, and it certainly looks like that it will be a September to remember. Now, if you uh, want to support our little podcast, um, please head over to iTunes, uh, Spotify, or Amazon, wherever you get your podcast from. Leave a rating and review. Uh, make sure you uh, follow the podcast. That's always uh, a help. Of course, if you want to share it, that would be even better. Next week, I'm joined by Rich, so I'm sure we'll have um, lots of how should I say, hardcore, maybe, trend-following uh, topics to dive into. So uh, looking forward to that. As always, you can ask, you can send your questions, and we're going to try and answer them to info at toptradersonplug.com, and we do our best to bring them up um, on the next conversation. Anyways, from Alan and me, thanks ever so much. Uh, we look forward to being back with you next week. And in the meantime, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to the Systematic Investor Podcast Series. If you enjoy this series, go on over to iTunes and leave an honest rating and review. And be sure to listen to all the other episodes from Top Traders Unplugged. If you have questions about systematic investing, send us an email with the word question in the subject line to info at toptradersunplugged.com and we'll try to get it on the show. And remember, all the discussion that we have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their products before you make investment decisions. Thanks for spending some of your valuable time with us, and we'll see you on the next episode of The Systematic Investor.